Homer Simpson here, proud addition to the Disney family and soon appearing on Disney Plus. I, for one, salute our new corporate overlord. A year ago today, Disney launched its streaming service, Disney Plus. Over the next nine months, the service attracted 60 million subscribers. Originally, the company had predicted it would take five years to hit that number. So what happened? A global pandemic. With all of us stuck at home, time spent watching TV skyrocketed. We all parked ourselves in front of our TVs. I know I did. Disney wasn't the only winner, of course. And we're going to talk about how the pandemic has changed the streaming industry and which of those changes are likely to stick around. Plus, some cool technology that's made it easier to restart production during COVID. And Baby Yoda. That's all happening today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Evram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Okay, Michal, pop quiz. You mentioned that the amount of time that we all spent watching streaming video has jumped during the pandemic. Well, Nielsen put a number on that in the second quarter, April to June, when we were all locked in at home. If you were going to put a percentage on it, how much do you think everybody's weekly viewing time increased in the second quarter? All right. I'm going to say that it doubled, judging by my own household. Pretty close. It jumped by 74%. So it didn't quite double, but it shot up. And I know that I watched a lot more streaming video. How about you? Yeah, for sure. And the reason it doubled for me is because I watched so little TV before. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Yeah. And it was either doom scrolling through Twitter, you know, watching the news and seeing the latest horrifying development, or let's have a little escape. And so let's delve into some of those shows that we haven't watched that we've been thinking about. Maybe we should. Yeah. And lucky for us, there's not just more and more content to choose from but also more and more streaming services for us to choose from. That's right. Later in this episode, we're going to hear a conversation I had with Andy Forcell, who oversees HBO's streaming service, HBO Max. But I want to play a small portion of that here because he had some interesting things to say about consumption habits during the pandemic. There was a 60% rise in consumption of daily active, you know, how many minutes daily active viewers uh, consume from Q1 to mid-year, once you saw the impact of both COVID and more content available from HBO Max. But we we saw significant increases literally overnight and within a week in March. And you can see binging behavior. I mean, there are people that are working their way through Friends and we can see it. And it's a lot of seasons, a lot of episodes, but you can tell they say, well, I'm, if, if there's ever a time to do it, this is it. People starting the wire because they never had time and it was a little daunting and they know it's a fantastic TV show. We see that in people's behavior. It's hard to really totally know, you know, how much of these habits are are going to stick, you know, as we hopefully uh, roll out a vaccine and start to move past the worst of the the pandemic. But I assume you must think that a lot of that habit forming is going to stick. There's certainly a piece of it that will stick in that it was the reason for lots of people to sort of get their deck chairs set up and get all their apps downloaded, whether it's on the TV or on a streaming box. Certainly older people, even though not that they weren't streaming before, but but I think all audiences and all demos, it was a good driver to just figure it out and get your setup at home saying, when I watch, what do I watch? And, and how do I have all the apps set up? And I think that led to some of the increase in consumption that, that I mentioned that we saw. 
I think people have just realized this is going to be a big part of how I consume. And though the hours may reduce a little as we ease out of this, whenever that is, I, I do think a bunch of that behavior is going to stick because they realize this is how I watch TV. This is how I spend most of the hours um, for many households that, that I'm going to spend consuming entertainment. Someone else who spends a lot of time analyzing the streaming business is our colleague, Eric Jenkins. When he's not covering politics, he's our primary entertainment reporter. You can guess which one of those is more fun. We've talked about Disney Plus and HBO Max, and Eric said Netflix was another winner during all of this. Unsurprisingly, it gained 26 million new subscribers through the first three quarters of the year, almost as many as it attracted during all of 2019. But the big players weren't the only ones to benefit here. Yeah, so, so far, Peacock, within a few months of its launch, uh, managed to get, to get about 22 million subscribers, which is a solid sum. They have uh, a bit of a different approach in that they have an ad-supported tier, um, so it's going to be a little bit easier, I think, to get people to sign up for that service. So they're, they're still in the game. You see Hulu has about 35 million subscribers and has done pretty well. Has, you know, I say challenge Netflix, not quite on a global scale, but definitely in terms of uh, within the U.S. domestically, and also just on a, I think on a, a pop culture level as well, they have a number of very popular shows that you know people talk about on social media, and so they've managed to stay relevant. As we step back and look at this this sort of landscape, you know, there's been this explosion of these services. All the major networks are bringing them out. I mean, we've seen Netflix for years investing in original content heavily. As we see this uh, start to become more of a a highly competitive landscape, is it going to be driven by content? Is uh, original content going to be what wins the day? I think that when you look at how shows create a buzz or how services create a buzz, it, it often is on those original series that tend to go viral in social media that are talked about a lot in the press um, and generate that excitement. And it's, it's going to be, I think, compelling for users to sign up for those services because they... You know, they want to watch Star Wars The Mandalorian because people love Star Wars. If you're a Star Wars fan like me, and there are a lot of Star Wars fans, you've always wanted to see a live action Star Wars streaming show. So ultimately, as any media analyst will tell you, content is king. And that is the biggest factor, I think, to convincing people to sign up for these services. You know, The Mandalorian on Disney Plus has been such a huge factor, I think, in getting so many people to sign up for the show. And Baby Yoda alone. I mean, just the show was created by John Favreau, the writer and director. The moment where he or whoever he was brainstorming with said, what if we had a baby Yoda? Like, think about how powerful that one idea was. And that brings up a, another really good point when we talk about how shows um, go viral on social media, how the word is spread. And I think when you look at a service like Quibi, which had so much... Uh, you know, support from Hollywood studios, from technology companies that raised millions and millions of dollars and has already folded uh, within about six months of its existence. You know, there's a lot of factors that go into, I'm sure, why it didn't quite work out. But something as small as the fact that you couldn't screenshot images from the shows that were on its service. And that's how the memes come. That's how the tweets come. That's how the word spreads about these shows. And so when you have that ability to have someone like Baby Yoda, you know, as, as silly as it sounds, be able to be spread across this cultural zeitgeist on social media, on Twitter, it really creates a, 
itch for people to see what is that all about? Who is this baby Yoda? Uh, I, I got to check this out. Maybe I'll even subscribe. I'm so glad you guys brought up baby Yoda because I recently talked to Rob Bredo who is the chief creative officer of Industrial Light and Magic. That's the division of Lucasfilm, Star Wars maker, of course, that handles visual effects and sound effects. And they do a lot of work not only for Lucasfilm projects, but also for other movies and shows. And Rob has been there for a while. In fact, he's the former CTO of Lucasfilm. We talked about some of the advances on the technology side that have come to fruition there and are really helping them to shoot and produce content today. So StageCraft is all of our virtual production technologies at Lucasfilm. Um, and the most innovative and the newest part of StageCraft is the StageCraft LED stage. And we can bring an entire virtual environment to life and it looks completely real wrapped around you. So this is over 75 feet across. It's over 100 feet deep. So it's a really large environment. And, and you need that because um, we still build practical sets. So real sets are still around our actors. And we build these set fragments and these partial sets inside these large LED stages. And that lets us get all the kind of interactivity that you expect. The actors, of course, need to have a place to, to sit or play out their scenes and block their scenes. So you need that space for that. But instead of putting a blue screen or a green screen behind that practical stage, now the LEDs not only provide the background that you can photograph and you can see what it is right there and compose your shots properly and do all that, but it also provides all the lighting. So the director of photography has a really controllable set now, a digital LED set that surrounds the actors that they can light them from every direction. So it's a very flexible lighting instrument as well. So my understanding is the development of this was before, you know, pre-COVID, before this was even on the horizon for any of us. So why did you start developing this internally and what was the original intention? Yeah, one of our goals in visual effects is to continue innovating and continue to bringing a more creative experience to our filmmakers. So this has been several years in the making. In fact, back five, six years ago, we were using LED walls in collaboration with directors of photography like Greg Frazier and others. And one of our supervisors, John Knoll, and Greg Frazier collaborated to light the actors when they are in the X-Wing fighters, light them with these LED walls. So instead of the old way of doing it, which would be you'd set up some lights and you'd have grips standing there moving the lights back and forth and trying to create some activity, but it tended to be a little bit random and chaotic and didn't look completely believable. Their idea was, let's use some big LED walls. Let's load some content up, the Star Destroyer, the space, the planet. Let's load it on the walls. And as we rotate the virtual content, we'll get much more interesting interactive lighting on these actors' faces. And that idea worked really well on Rogue One. If you look at some of the photography in that show, it's some of the best cockpit work we had done. But at that time, the LED panels weren't high resolution like they are today. So you couldn't photograph it directly. It, it would look like a jumbotron. You could see all the individual pieces of it. On Solo, I tried to build on some of those ideas and I was supervising Solo. And when Ron Howard was directing the actors in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, when they looked out the window, it was actually a screen and it was high resolution graphics that we could actually photograph. So when they went into hyperspace, they could see hyperspace around them. And just 
the interactivity that the performers had, the actors had, when they're doing that Kessel run and they can see the space monster in front of them, it changed their acting, it changed the way Ron Howard was able to flexibly direct those really complicated scenes. And we knew we were onto something. Bradford Young was the director of photography on that. And he shot scenes inside that Falcon cockpit that we'd never shot in nine other Star Wars movies because he had the lighting and the background all together at the same time. So then when we got a chance to work with Jon Favreau on The Mandalorian, he he didn't want to just use it for cockpits. He wanted to see how we could take these virtual production techniques to the next level. And that's when we we realized, you know, he was going to push for really innovating in this space on a much larger scale, building entire sets, building entire worlds in these virtual sets uh, inside of the Stagecraft LED volume. And fast forward to today and you're, you know, you've got season two out, you've got all sorts of other projects that are in progress right now. And so how is this being used more broadly, especially in the time of COVID that we're in right now? It's a really useful tool, especially today when we need to work with smaller, more efficient crews on set. Um, Also, there's a lot of shows in production or waiting to get in production. And one of the things that Stagecraft brings to the table is the ability to shoot many locations on just one soundstage. And we shot, I think, for season one of The Mandalorian, we shot over 60 sets on just one soundstage. Because with the digital environment, it only takes us a couple minutes. You hit a button, it loads up, and now you're in a different planet. So we found that there's a lot of interest in moving very efficiently because Stagecraft lets you shoot more in a day. Uh, It lets you bring your locations to you instead of having to travel your cast around the world. And then also just creatively, there's a lot of movies that have things that are hard to go to or hard to photograph directly. And being able to do that live on set and get your production designer and your DP and your visual effects supervisor together to solve the problems live so that the director can see the results. It's, it's just a really exciting, creative opportunity. You know, Lucasfilm, obviously you guys are known for your own projects, and in particular Star Wars and all of the many offshoots that you have now. But ILM has been around for a very, very long time, and you do a lot of visual effects and sound effects for other projects, other companies' projects. So Talk to us about demand for stagecraft in particular today, again, especially in light of the restrictions that we're all dealing with. Yeah, we're really fortunate to get to innovate with stagecraft with a filmmaker like John Favreau. And then once a lot of his friends saw it, uh, it's really great that we get a chance to work with so many of them on their productions. So shows like George Clooney's Midnight Sky. We also have a lot of Lucasfilm shows that are interested in uh, Lucasfilm and Marvel shows like Thor 4 that are that are taking advantage of it as well. One of the things that's definitely changed since we've gone back to shooting in a COVID world is the kind of restrictions we deal with on set. Pre-COVID, it was common to have 250 people on one large set and that people are moving everywhere. And today there tends to be, depending on what country we're shooting in, there tends to be some pretty significant restrictions on how many people can be together, how closely they can be spaced, every little detail to make sure people are staying safe. So one of the nice things that Stagecraft, LED Stage, opens up for folks is some of those things that used to have to be done with large teams of people just standing by just in case you had to make that change, uh, a lot of those choices can now be made digitally. And you can either make them in advance, like we are right now with filmmakers, where we are planning in virtual reality, we're planning on the people are working on their scenes from their respective houses, getting everything prepped so that the day you're ready to shoot, you can walk on that stage and you already have your set 
virtually built. You have your lighting well underway or almost done, and you just have to make your final adjustments before ready to, you're ready to shoot. So those sort of things improve the production efficiency of a show, but they also make it easier to get back to shooting things that you've planned uh, when it's actually safe to get onto a set with a limited amount of crew. Okay, I've got to work in a Baby Yoda question. Great. <laughs> <laughs> How many Baby Yodas exist? Like it's a puppet, right? Yes. And I don't know the precise number. I know that there is. Is this proprietary information? It's actually, I just don't know exactly how many there are because there's different stunt babies for different things. But I do know one of the stories that came out of season one because there's that scene where Baby Yoda gets punched. And apparently, you know, we have the stunt babies for certain things, but they don't look quite as great as the hero baby who has all the expensive uh, animatronics in, in him and can do all of those amazing puppeteer, all the amazing performances that the puppet can actually deliver. And one of the funny things was they were doing the punching scene. And I think I heard John Favreau walked up to the actor who was playing that scene and said, just so you know, I, I mean, I want you to deliver the punch, but that thing costs tens of thousands of dollars. That's the hero baby. So don't punch him too, too hard. <laughs> yeah. And then in addition, there's amazing puppeting work. And as you know, we're all huge fans of having a real practical baby on the set. And then we also have a digital baby that we can use. And, and it's, it's a mixture that ends up in the final show so that, you know, John Favreau can get exactly the performance he's looking for. So there's a lot that goes on behind the child is what you're saying. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> there's a lot. That, that's right. There's many mysteries the child holds. Okay, Brian, I know you are a huge Mandalorian fan, so this is the part where you can just, you know, share your favorite lines with us. This is the way. <laughs> I actually have one small gripe about The Mandalorian. I do love it. I've been binging it. I can't wait for the next episode. But I kind of want to hear Baby Yoda talk. I feel like there's a lot of untapped potential there, you know? Like, like I want to hear that Yoda voice in baby form saying, like, Sleepy I am. Nap I need to take. <laughs> How could anyone punch Baby Yoda? Seriously. He takes a lot of abuse, actually. He gets dropped and, you know, smacked around in the spaceship, and he seems pretty durable. He's, he's resilient, and this is why they have several copies, I guess. Uh, but, you know, on a more serious note, I think Disney, for the longest time, was knocked for not launching a streaming service earlier on. You know, it's years and years after Netflix launched and Hulu and, and, and many others. And yet, in hindsight, they seem to have impeccable timing, you know, not only with Baby Yoda, but with just the streaming service in general, because they, like we said earlier, they have hit their mark so much earlier than expected. And, you know, not that anybody would say the pandemic is a good thing, obviously, but I'm sure they're happy with their results. Earlier in the show, we heard a bit from Andy Forcell. We wanted to speak with him because he oversees one of the newer streaming services, HBO Max. But he also has a long history in the industry. He was actually at Hulu in the early days and helped get that streaming service up and running. Yeah, Andy's had a, a long history in the business and was in streaming early on. I don't think it moved as quickly as you know he thought it would go and as some others. And the CEO of Warner Media, which HBO is under, Jason Kilar, actually ran Hulu. So a lot of history there. Yeah, and just like it took Hulu a while to build up, HBO is kind of off to a rocky start in the streaming world as well. I mean, HBO has been such a bastion of content on cable and such a success story for so long, but 
you know, the world has been changing so rapidly in the last couple of years, and they didn't make things easy for themselves trying to adjust. They came out with, they had HBO Now, they had HBO Go, they have HBO streaming, and, and now they're focusing on HBO Max. So it seems like they are, you know, finally deciding, okay, we're going to focus on one product. Yeah, I I subscribe, although I honestly don't know which one I subscribe to. Uh, all I know is that I want HBO content and I have access to it. And I think this really makes the point of um, content is king. You know, that's what we keep hearing about. And yes, it was really confusing to consumers. I don't think it was a great rollout for multiple reasons. And they had a lot of hiccups. But as long as they keep producing content that people want, people will sign up. Yeah, I actually subscribed to HBO on cable, but I haven't figured out how to use HBO Max yet. And they're betting on people figuring out how to get to their service, first of all, which is really difficult right now because they haven't reached an agreement with Roku or Amazon Fire Stick, uh, which are the two biggest you know devices that people use to access streaming services. So they have to get that figured out. And then they are making that bet that people are going to want their content because they're pricing it like a premium product. And, you know, it's a crowded space. And, and we talked about that with Andy. So as you increasingly migrate towards HBO Max being sort of the preferred way for, for consumers to stream your content directly, how have you rethought the revenue mix of how you monetize content at HBO? How is it different from two years ago, five years ago? Is it radically different? It, it, it is probably on the verge of being radically different. Maybe not quite. I don't mean to mince words there, but let me describe it and why I say that. So, you know, HBO, of course, for decades, traditionally it defined what premium cable was, been distributed through cable and satellite primarily. Um, and we call that wholesale business versus retail business, meaning going direct to consumer. Hugely successful and profitable for both HBO and for those distributors over the years. But that cable and satellite ecosystem is clearly in secular decline and, and will continue to be. It's still billions of dollars and still many, many consumers, uh, tens of millions in the U.S. are voting with their wallets that they still want to consume via that system. So absolutely still very important. But the direction is clearly down, not up over time. Think about HBO. I mean, in, in 18 and 19, that programming team was firing all cylinders. They had game last season of Game of Thrones. Fantastic programming. You couldn't ask them to do more than they did. And yet over those three years, HBO lost 3 million subs rather than gained. And it's because of the environment in which and the means by which they distributed themselves. So they started to experiment with HBO now. We've gotten more aggressive in that respect with HBO Max. And AT&T has been very supportive of significant investments there. And so it is on the verge of changing dramatically. And that those customers that are still voting to pay via those means we're entirely happy if they continue to do so. That's their choice. We're focusing on a couple customer groups. The people that aren't happy with that and are cycling in and out of that ecosystem and HBO Max gives them more content, programs to more people in the household and has, has lengthened lifetimes there, which is good. And then also, of course, direct to consumer, which whether it's five years from now or 10 years from now or 15 years from now, I think we know how consumers are going to vote. That's going to become more and more important. But both are very important to us. And again, I think... The priority for HBO Max is find people that were not satisfied enough with just HBO via those mechanisms and make that the priority for acquisition now. Over the long term, we expect that transition to continue. So HBO Max is priced on the higher end of the spectrum and, you know, I assume reflects 
um, your confidence in, in your, your catalog of material and, and the brand. Um, you know, HBO has had this from The Sopranos through The Wire to Game of Thrones, like, you know, as you said, kind of setting the standard on quality. What's going to keep you competitive or keep you at the top end of the spectrum with so much competition out there? Well, it's certainly gotten competitive and it's competitive on all levels. It's not just with consumers for their, their spend and their time. It's also with talent and other content producers. I think the key, look, we start with this bedrock of HBO that again, we've, we've tried to really not just maintain, but strengthen what is great about it. And that team has a couple of years of programming ahead that looks phenomenal. I think storytelling is ultimately the difference maker. It is harder to copy, harder to be good at, not just in one-offs, but month in and month out, quarter in and quarter out, season in and season out over over the years. And, and we've got tremendous strength there, not just with HBO, but with Warner Brothers, both the film company as well as TV. Yeah. As you say, it's an incredible war for talent. How do you win that battle? How do you make sure you get the show that everybody's going to be talking about? Sure. I think part of it is we don't have to beat the other players. Like people talk about the streaming wars, but in the end, you're you're People are going to put together collections of services. Some people might have one or two. Some people might, you know, most families and households are going to have far more than that. You you look at the figures and say people have five or six and they expect to have more. So I really think of it as, can we get the best talent and stories and can we win a share of their time? We only have 24 hours a day and only so much of it can be spent uh, and should be spent, frankly, um, watching this kind of storytelling I think we have a real advantage with talent in that we're not just running a streaming business. We've got a motion picture company. We've got the Turner Networks. We've got other aspects of Warner Media where J.J. Abrams did a big deal with Warner Media. And it was in part not just because of streaming or even just because of HBO, but because we can put his creativity to work across a lot of other outlets. And that's important to talent. Let me ask you about the Warner Brothers aspect of it, because you mentioned the studio and, you know, now HBO having this capacity to to leverage the studio and create properties that can be pushed out through multiple channels. How are you thinking about that? What is the future of premium content or feature film content debuts and distribution look like, you know, in relation to also a streaming service like HBO Max? The feature film studio has probably gone through more COVID-related impact than anybody else because theaters closed, came to a hard stop. You're seeing all film studios, not just ours, have to suddenly look with pretty open eyes and be willing to think about any option there. So I think you're going to see a lot of experimentation. Nobody's throwing out the old system in their mind, but in the interim, you have to be willing to experiment. You're seeing that. You're seeing not just us, but other companies experiment. And you'll see us get more aggressive about that in the coming months, you know, 21 is going to be a big question mark for everyone with that respect. And then the big question will be what happens in 22? Does it go back to normal? Uh, I don't think anything goes back to normal, but we may recede and you may see smaller and medium films head more to streaming services right away. You know, consumers are going to tell us what they want. The good news is streaming is growing enough that eventually it can effectively monetize all those films. And so we're going to have to let consumers tell us what kind of experiences do they want? Film distribution is definitely an area where 
we're going to see a lot of lasting impact from the pandemic and the shift in viewing habits, which is something that was already taking place before the virus. And we talked to our colleague Eric about this same thing. I I honestly think it's going to be a big shift in how the traditional studio system works. The theaters for years now have tried to maintain the 90-day, three-month theatrical window in order to protect the amount of money coming into the theaters to make people, you know, make it an exclusive place that that's the only place you can see the movie. And it always seemed like over the last five years or so that that wasn't going to be sustainable. And I think that the pandemic was the final big shift that really accelerated this process. Um, And so you look at a studio like Universal, major studio that reached an agreement with AMC, which is the country's largest theatrical exhibitor, to shorten that 90-day window down to 17 days. And that's a concession that I'm sure AMC did not want to make, but the reality is that the the studios have, I think, more power in this situation to determine where they can put their content because they did experiment with some direct-to-video premium content on digital streaming services where they could you could buy a movie for 20 bucks straight to your TV in your living room and it saw some success. I don't think it was an, enough success ultimately for the theaters to decide to get rid of that model altogether, but it has made clear that studios have options, I think, um, and that's going to change all sorts of dynamics in terms of where money is spent for marketing, budgeting there, um, and how studios and theaters make their money. I think Eric summarized it really well. We're still seeing like a rapid evolution in how Hollywood and all these studios are figuring out ways to distribute their content and get it to people in this new streaming era. Totally agree. Okay, Brian, before we sign off, you ready for a little competition? You know, I'm always ready for competition, Michal. All right. Let me explain to our listeners what we're going to do here. We have selected some audio clips from streaming shows that have major significance, not just great TV, but they've marked important milestones in other ways in the streaming era. So first, I'm going to play a clip for you, and you're going to guess where it's from, okay? And then you're going to have your turn. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, let's play the first clip. I know this is hard for you. But winter is coming. Okay, clearly that was something from Trolls. Just kidding, Game of Thrones. That's right, (laughs) Game of Thrones. The finale of Game of Thrones was the most watched episode of any show ever on HBO. And uh, the show gained more viewers each season while it was on, which is pretty unusual. Game of Thrones has actually won more Emmys than any show other than SNL, Saturday Night Live. All right, my turn. Can you guess this one, Brian? For those of us climbing to the top of the food chain, there can be no mercy. There is but one rule. Hunt or be hunted. I'm not sure I can get that. I don't I, I think I'm failing here. That's one for me, zero for you. That was House of Cards, the first Netflix produced show and the first original premiered in 2013. Doesn't that seem like so long ago? I know it's had a uh, kind of a dubious end, but uh, but it was pretty fantastic. You know, I watched that show, and I guess when Kevin Spacey got canceled, I kind of canceled it out of my mind. Fair enough. (laughs) Okay, now I get to play another one for you. Are you ready? I'm ready. You girls 
will serve the leaders of the faithful and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. I'm going to go with Handmaid's Tale. Ding, 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 ding. Winner. I knew you were going to get that. I still have nightmares after watching that. Seriously. A lot of people watched it. A lot of people got nightmares. And in fact, The Handmaid's Tale became the first streaming show ever to win Best Drama Series and the first primetime Emmy winner for Hulu back in 2017. So it was a major milestone as well. That was also another show that had just impeccable timing. It really resonated. All right, one more to go. Ready, Brian? You better get this one. I know. I got I to gotta save face. Before you try to guess, this is a little bit of a trick question, so I feel like I need to give you a hint. It's not The Mandalorian, but it is sort of set in a galaxy far, far away as well in the Middle East. Oh, was it Fauda? Yeah, ding, 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 Fauda. And I... I chose this one because this is actually one of my favorite things about streaming is that we get amazing access to foreign stuff as well. And this one, this one hit close to home. This is an Israeli uh, made show and happens to be where I'm from. And I, I just loved it. I loved how it just showed both sides and it was gripping and horrible to watch and awesome at the same time. And I understand you watched it too, because I told you to. That's right. <laughs> You told me I had to, so I immediately went and watched it. But yeah, it was actually like, I associate it with the beginning of the pandemic because it was something that I started watching right, you know, when we all went into lockdown and I watched it obsessively because once you start, it's hard to stop. Yeah, I think I, I binged this one harder than, you know, any anything else I've watched. So agree with you there. All right. I think that is it for today. Thanks for listening. And we're going to be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. I have spoken. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written by Megan Arnold and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. <laughs>